Welcome to the Michigan Constitution Podcast, where the citizens of the Mitten State seek the pleasant peninsula between their state and federal identities through a deeper understanding of how Michigan's Constitution and its defining case law affects their everyday lives. Your host, Tony Snyder, is a licensed Michigan attorney with more than a decade of experience in private and government practice. Through this podcast, you'll better understand the unique characteristics of Michigan's supreme law and probably learn a few fun facts about federalism, too. And now, here's Tony. Welcome back to the ninth installment of the Michigan Constitution podcast. This time, we're going to close out our conversation regarding Article 1, Section 4 of the Michigan Constitution. The purpose of this podcast is merely to teach you what's in the Michigan Constitution. Each podcast will review a different article section, we'll talk about what it means, and we'll review Michigan case law, which helps us to better understand the effects of those constitutional provisions. Here's what this podcast is not. It is not legal advice. It is not legal expertise. Although I am a licensed attorney in the state of Michigan, I make no warranties as to the veracity of the statements I make within this podcast. First of all, I don't practice constitutional law. I practice administrative law. Second, the laws change on a day-to-day basis, as does case law. What might be applicable the day I make a statement about the Michigan Constitution could very well be outdated the day I post this podcast. If you think you're going to become a Michigan Constitutional Scholar because of my podcast, you're sadly mistaken. You'd do better with a Ouija board and a Magic 8-Ball. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you need Michigan legal advice, you would be well served to contact the State Bar of Michigan and ask for their Lawyer Referral Service Program for a referral to an attorney who specializes in your legal matter. Article 1, Section 4. Daughtry v. Vanguard Charter School Academy is a case out of Michigan but was addressed in the year 2000 at the federal district court level because it implicated both federal and state constitutional issues. Obviously, my interest is in the Michigan Constitution piece for the purposes of this podcast. Vanguard Charter School Academy is a public school academy in Grand Rapids which offers elementary education for kindergarten through 8th grade students. Plaintiffs in this case are parents of students who had gone to Vanguard. The parents to the lawsuit alleged their children had been subjected to numerous and various Christian influences at the public school. Action alleged to have occurred were pursuant to customs of the school tending to promote or condone the endorsement of religion. Now, part of the church's argument against the parents' allegation was that the parents lacked standing to sue the school because they weren't there and, as such, the children couldn't have incurred any actions taken by the school. Sidebar. Not every disagreement has the right to be aired out in court just because one party is upset. Standing is a legal term which determines whether the party bringing the lawsuit has the legal right to do so. Standing is not about the issues, it's about who is bringing the lawsuit and whether they have the legal right to sue. Standing exists from one of three causes, but for the purposes of this case, we merely need to look at the most appropriate cause. The scenario is when a party, like the parents of the children at Vanguard, are not directly harmed by the conditions by which they are petitioning the court for relief, 
They ask for it because the harm involved has some reasonable relation to their situation, and the continued existence of the harm may affect others, like the parents' children who are attending Vanguard. And those folks may not be able to ask for relief from a court. Not all of the allegations brought by the parents could be heard by the district court judge because the parents didn't have standing to bring the claims they felt had occurred in violation of the Michigan Constitution. The judge said that the parents could only obtain a solution for wrongdoing which directly affected their children. Activities and practices that did not directly affect the plaintiff's children, or of which the children had no knowledge, could not be said to have burdened the children's freedom of conscience or the parents' right to guide their religious upbringing. Said another way, any complaint the parents brought forth which the children would not have had knowledge about or it did not burden the parents' right to raise or, let's say, not raise the children in a religious manner, well, those would be dismissed for lack of standing. There were seven alleged objectionable practices which would occur at the Vanguard School and the court worked through one by one. As I think you'll find, the parents threw everything at the wall just to see what might stick against the school. But that's exactly why I selected this case because I wanted to address as many different types of scenarios as possible to give you an idea of what the court deals with and how they view those situations. Fortunately, I was able to cover a lot of ground with this one case. So, first up, the allegation of prayer services on school property during school hours. According to the school board's policy, the cooperation and significant involvement of parents in their children's education is highly encouraged so as to enable all students to reach their full academic potential and develop a high moral character for becoming significant members of society. To accomplish this goal, a parent room is available for parents of the students during and after regular school hours to provide parents with a place to support the moral and academic excellence in the educational environment. One particular group which uses the room is a mom's prayer group who meets from 8.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. one day a week. It is true that during the meetings, members read from the Bible as well as pray for parents, students, teachers, so on and so forth at the school. This parent room is off-limits to children, although the children, generally speaking, knew of the group and its activities. The angry parents contend that because the children are aware of what goes on in the room, it could translate in the minds of the children that the school endorses religion. The district court judge starts off by stating that he sees the allowance of the room for usage by parents as a way to effectuate the stated goal of parental involvement as a non-religious purpose. He notes that, to the contrary, the policy refuses to discriminate against any parent group which wishes to use it for their own religious prayer room. This policy, the judge said, was neutral towards religion because it neither benefited nor impaired any religion. But also, if the school said the parents could do anything except religious activity like prayer, it would be seen as government, because remember it's a public school, impairing religious activity. But the judge does note the parents might have a point that the young children of the school could see it as school encouraging religion. 
But the key factor for the federal judge was that no children were invited to join the group, nor were they even allowed to observe the group. The fact the school goes out of its way to disassociate these groups from the children and the activity was very important. One other factor that the judge found as to why this was not a violation of Article 1, Section 4 of the Constitution is because there was no excessive entanglement of government and religion. The school went out of its way to avoid involvement with the prayer group. It never directed the prayer group, it never limited the actions of the prayer group, nor did the school ever censor the prayer group. It has zero interaction with this group. This, the judge believed, maintained a neutrality that is essential for a government actor like a public school. Next allegation, participation of teachers and staff in prayer on school property. Some Vanguard teachers had been meeting for prayer on school premises before the start of the school day. There was also seen two teachers standing by a flagpole in open prayer meetings with approximately 8 to 10 children. The judge said that protected conduct like prayer, which is not part of the school curriculum or school-sponsored activities, may not be restricted unless it would materially and substantially interfere with the operation of the school or that the students, parents, members of the public might reasonably perceive that that religious activity uh, is being given permission by the school. But school policy is very clear that while teachers may discuss matters that are religious in nature, they are not to do so during school hours, particularly around children. But because there was no actual knowledge that the teachers were leading the prayer around the flagpole, or even that what was discussed at the flagpole was religious in nature was mere conjecture by the parents, and it was not enough to support an Article 1, Section 4 violation. Allegation number three, distribution of religious material. It's the policy of Vanguard School to distribute during school hours material to students from community groups, which include religious groups. The children would then take whatever materials they were given home with them, and they would share it with the parents. However, just like with community use of the parent room used for prayer, the judge found the school never manipulated its neutral policy by giving preferential treatment to religious literature, specifically Christian literature. Perhaps if one religion was favored over others, the judge thought, well, then maybe there was a possible establishment clause violation that could be made by the parents. But because there was neither favoritism nor discrimination amongst these community groups wishing to distribute the literature, the judge did not find the parents' argument credible. Fourth allegation, religious content of in-service training for teachers and administrative staff. One of the parents attended a moral focus retreat, which was a day-long in-service training event, which was required attendance for school teachers and administrative staff. The purpose of the in-service training was to instruct teachers on the use of historical heroes as a way to illustrate character and moral development. This particular parent was there because he was a member of the parent committee and essentially sent as their representative. No surprise, he took exception to a song being used at the opening of the meeting, which contained a passage or two from the Bible. He was also upset that lunch was preceded by a brief Christian prayer. You can tell as the judge was working his way through his opinion, he was becoming less sympathetic to the plaintiff parents and their kitchen sink approach, mainly because his words became more brash and his explanations less thorough. 
Here, he said it was undisputed that no students attended the moral focus retreat, nor did religious influence become part of the school's instructional materials. Therefore, the parents failed to show an actual injury by this conduct against the children and ruled the parents had no standing to bring their claim. Fifth allegation, religious music. On December 4th, the school held its annual Christmas party for the employees of the school. There was religious music played at a Christmas party. And once again, a curt judge wrote that because there were no students present at the employee Christmas party, the parents did not have standing to bring a claim. Allegation 5. Teaching morality from religious viewpoint. As was noted a few moments ago in this case review, the school has a goal of teaching the students morality and character building. The school had used a moral-focused curriculum based on four Greek cardinal virtues, those four being prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. It was believed these four virtues embody certain moral principles common to all that transcend time. And although plaintiff parents didn't have an issue with the moral character development or use of the four Greek cardinal virtues, where they got all worked up was as it related to the key words used to define the four virtues. Words like merciful, compassion, grace, moral strength, conscience, faith, and self-sacrifice were just too much for these parents. But the judge said these words neither expressly mention nor hint at religion. He believed that a reasonable observer would not find the school to be endorsing or disapproving of religion. He said that the school has established explicit and comprehensive guidelines for the teachers to follow, none of which causes them to engage in unconstitutional conduct. Seventh and last allegation, creationism. This is the only allegation made by plaintiff that the judge thought may have been close to inappropriate teaching. There were two instances where the children were taught about creationism. The first time was when a science teacher responded to a student's question about the origin of atoms by answering, quote, from God. The other instance was when a teacher, critical about the form of a question in a preview test question concerning evolution, well, the teacher responded he did not believe that evolution was true. But the judge correctly points out that neither of these instances suggest the school is teaching creationism as an accepted scientific theory, especially since neither of these instances were done as an official policy of the school. But maybe said another way, the school wasn't directing the teachers to teach creationism. They were two throwaway comments based on particular circumstances which arose in the classroom. There was no evidence, the judge determined, to suggest that these anecdotal discussions of evolution or creation reflect a policy of endorsement of religion. More so, the judge points out even the teachings of creationism isn't inherently wrong. There are various scientific theories about the origin of mankind, and if done in a clear, non-religious manner, teaching creationism is just another theory to be covered. What's particularly galling of these plaintiffs to argue creationism shouldn't be taught in school is that they're doing the exact thing as it was related to the Scopes monkey trial, 
which if you'll remember, was a United States Supreme Court case out of Tennessee, whereby the state made it a misdemeanor to teach anything other than creationism. The court in that case ruled in favor of the teacher who taught the theory of evolution in violation of the Tennessee law. But here, these parents wanted to prevent creationism from being taught in school the way the Tennessee legislature had tried to forbid the exact theory the plaintiff is now pushing. The judge said incidental references to God and creationism did not even come close to implicating constitutional values which would warrant judicial intrusion into defendants' management of the school's curriculum. And, for those reasons, all of the plaintiff parents' claims were dismissed against the school. Our final case on Article 1, Section 4 is a 2005 Michigan Court of Appeals case involving the Establishment Clause. That case deals with the Boy Scouts and their related Declaration of Religious Principles oath that the boys must recite prior to membership. A father of a wannabe Boy Scout, John Scalise, sent a letter to the prospective Boy Scout troop explaining that the declaration to the religious principles was repugnant to his humanist beliefs and requested an exemption from the requirement. His request by the Boy Scouts was denied and membership of the Scalise family was revoked. Based on the Boy Scouts' denial to exempt individuals from the religious principles' oath, the Scalise father went to the school district to complain that a religious organization was handing out flyers with no disclaimer informing parents of the religious character of the Boy Scouts. Although Mr. Scalise got what he wanted, he was still not happy and decided to sue the Boy Scouts alleging the actions of the Scouts and their use of the public schools excessively entangled the city in the Scouts' religious mission in violation of Article 1, Section 4. Here, the Court of Appeals said that there were three elements to review to determine if state action violated the prohibition on the establishment of religion. Or, said another way, does the city allowing a school to host Boy Scout meetings and hand out literature for boys to join establish religion in the school? Well, there are three elements. First, the state action must have a non-religious purpose. Second, the primary effect of the purpose must neither advance nor inhibit religion. And thirdly, that the state action must not foster an excessive government entanglement with religion. Regarding the state action, the city's policy states community groups who have city residents as its membership shall be permitted and encouraged to use school facilities when the use does not interfere with the school program. The Court of Appeals found the purpose of this policy is to open the City of Mount Pleasant facilities to the public, which is a non-religious goal. So the city has thus far successfully shown their action is a non-religious one. Next, the effect of allowing the Boy Scouts to use the school needs to neither advance nor inhibit religion. The court found this school has a policy of allocating resources reasonably, impartially, and as such, in a non-religious manner. Because the school was open to all groups, and because it was made available on a first-come, first-served basis, the school's policy was neutral and did not advance religion over non-religious groups. In this regard of advancement or prohibition of religion in school, the Court of Appeals went out of their way to point out a United States Supreme Court case and a Michigan Supreme Court case. 
the Court of Appeals noted the framers of the United States Constitution did not intend to impose a constitutional straitjacket preventing any sentiment of religious belief, however mild, from being expressed by a group or individual in a school. Incidental, indirect, or remote benefits to religion do not alone render a particular activity unconstitutional under the Michigan Constitution. Similarly, as it is related to the flyers sent home by organizations, the Court of Appeals found a wide array of groups were allowed to display posters in the Mount Pleasant schools and distribute literature to students, so long as those organizations satisfied the neutral qualifying criteria of the school district. After all, the Scouts' literature did not denote any religious aspect of the group until Mr. Scalise himself requested the Boy Scout troop to do so, but prior to that, there was no way to even know that the Boy Scouts had a religious tint to them. As such, the Scouts are not primarily a religious organization, but instead is a group preparing youth to make ethical choices by instilling in them certain values which may be religiously based, but the court did not believe that Mount Pleasant was advancing a religion. Finally, the Court of Appeals did not see how hosting a Boy Scout troop caused excessive entanglement by the city of Mount Pleasant. The school district did not monitor the Scout gatherings. Instead, they simply reviewed the Boy Scouts' in-school communications were in compliance with the district policy. This fell far short of comprehensive surveillance, a main factor when determining excessive entanglement. That ends our conversation on religion in schools. As you'll note, both the Michigan Supreme Court and the assorted Michigan Courts of Appeal have attempted to respect religion in schools. It is a fine line between accommodating religious practices and endorsing religious activity. But I think the old bumper sticker summed it up best. Quote, as long as schools administer tests and grades, there will always be prayer in school. Unquote. That's going to do it for episode 9 of the Michigan Constitution podcast. Please reach out to me by email at podcast at tonysnyder.com or you can find me, I'm on Twitter, I'm at Tony Snyder. We'll talk to you next time. The Michigan Constitution Podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not offer legal advice or create an attorney-client relationship. This podcast is hosted by Tony Snyder. For more information, visit TonySnyder.com, send an email to podcast at TonySnyder.com, or follow Tony on Twitter at Tony Snyder. Catch new episodes on the 1st and 15th of each month. Thanks for listening.